At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you very much, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. Stocks stage a sharp rebound after posting their biggest sell-off of the year. Bond yields are also bouncing, but they remain at those ultra-low levels. It's a very different dynamic than we saw in the first half of the year. We'll talk about which sectors should drive the next move in markets. Plus, Bitcoin is back below 30000 but Fidelity says institutions are still bullish on crypto. We'll talk about their findings and the main concerns that are still keeping investors on the sidelines. And can Netflix keep growing? Is Apple buying a movie studio? And the Nasdaq wants to give you access to pre-IPO companies. It's all ahead this hour, but we kick things off with this rally. Dom Chu has those numbers. Dom? I mean, what a difference a day makes, Kelly. We were talking about that sharp sell-off yesterday. And would you believe it if I told you at these levels right now, which represent, by the way, near highs of the session, we have now gotten back everything and more that we lost in the S&P 500, everything and more that we lost in the Nasdaq Composite. And the Dow is still just a stone's throw away of getting back everything it lost during yesterday's steep sell-off. So again, the Dow, the S&P and the Nasdaq having a massive day-to-day to the upside. One of the reasons why folks are looking a little bit closer at certain key parts of the market has to do with the interest rates that Kelly just mentioned. We are seeing this is an intraday basis of what happened with the 10-year Treasury note yield. It's back up to north of 1.2%. But earlier today, at the lows of our trading session, we were just a hair below 1.13% on the 10-year Treasury note yield. So a steep rally here off the lows in terms of yield of the day. So a little bit of that selling pressure entering that bond market or at least part of it. Also, then, that low interest rate environment yesterday may have played a role in helping certain parts of the growth technology industry outperform, specifically semiconductors, also software, and also cloud computing. Each of these is up relatively sharply today, as you can see here in your session highs. They were also, in many cases, very strong on a relative basis in yesterday's trade. And Kelly, I will point out that this particular Global X Cloud Computing ETF, ticker CLOU, was actually green yesterday when everybody else was red. So keep an eye on those growth technology stocks. They could be a big play here for certain investors looking to buy the dip. Right. Or is it growth for the wrong reasons if COVID is coming back to some, uh, to some extent? That's what we'll talk about right now. Dom, thanks very much, Dom Chu. The drop in yield certainly has a lot of investors scratching their heads. Remember, at the start of the year, rising yields and inflation worries helped energy and financials to be the best performers in the market. But is it time to look elsewhere for performance now that rates have reset much lower and with COVID cases back on the rise, maybe some of those tech plays that Don was just talking about. Joining me now is Charlie Wabrinskoy. He's head of the investment group at Ariel Investments. Charlie, it's great to have you. So, yeah, is this going to be the kind of environment where financials and energy can work like they did in the first half? Or am I way ahead of myself in even asking the question, should we still be focused on the downside risks here? No, you're not ahead of yourself. This is the question. And it is because that interest rates have dropped so much. When interest rates drop, the growth stocks, which earn their money way in the future, become more valuable, at least relative to the value stocks that we love that are making money today. So you're not asking the wrong question. 
But you, you are wrong, and the investment community is wrong, <laughs> if it thinks the bond market has some kind of uh, power to see the future. The bond market has a terrible track record. Uh, you know, over the last 10 years, I think I sent you some numbers, the U.S. equity markets have beaten investment-grade debt by more than 12% per year for the last 10 years. Over the last 100 years, equity markets have beaten the bond market by more than 5% per year. So the, the bond investor is a bunch of very scared people who, at the whiff of danger, will panic and rush to safety. And that's not the people you want to be taking your ticks from. All right, Charlie, but let me ask you this. Is it possible that the bond market is the... Um is calling the shots. In other words, if I think back to the last few years, I think about how many times have we had falling yield scares where what happens? The Fed comes in, they back off of whatever their plans were, and equities rally. So it's kind of the missing link in this whole formula, the idea that the central bank keeps accommodating these moves by backing off of its tightening plans. And is that about to happen yeah, again? That's, I think that's a reasonable read of history. And there's no doubt that the Fed has bought $8 trillion worth of bonds. They've propped up the bond market at a pace of $120 billion per month. That is going to end. I, I know I've said that before, and, and I've been wrong, but they're not going to keep doing this forever. And when they stop, the, the U.S. 10-year Treasury is going to return to its normal level, which is a return of inflation plus about 1%. We've, we've had Treasury bonds since Alexander Hamilton nationalized states' debts. And in that 200-plus year history, 10-year bonds have averaged 4%, which is their normal level. And I think that's where we're going once the Fed stops manipulating this market. Well, and we'll debate with Stephen Rick in just a moment all the different reasons why people say, including maybe uh, the Chinese buying U.S. Treasury debt again to kind of keep their currency from rising, all the reasons why yields might be where they are. But I mean, I guess to your point, I mean, you're just kind of saying, no, we're not we're not going to chase this. We're not chasing tech. We're not chasing growth. Your top picks right now, Madison Square Entertainment, Mosaic, Borg Warner. Um, tell me about the time horizon that you have here for people who go, all right, well, are we talking about a five year you know, move here or, or what? Yeah. Usually I, I'm really encouraging people to think five years long term. I always want to have people think that way. But I think these picks are actually good in the short term. The economy is very strong. The management teams that we're talking to are very optimistic about their short-term earnings. All the names that you mentioned, I think, have some good news in the short-term and the long-term. BorgWarner makes powertrain for lots of cars, including electric vehicles. Their demand is huge. Mosaic is doing very well in the current agricultural environment. They sell fertilizers. The ag world is very strong. They're going to do well. Madison Square Garden is the one you got to give me a couple of years because they're finishing the sphere in Las Vegas. When they do, it's going to be the number one attraction uh, venue in maybe some people would argue the world. So you got to give me a year on that one. But Madison Square Garden Entertainment is going to do very well. Yeah, a massive, you know, attraction in Las Vegas is probably not where people after yesterday's drop really want to put their money to work. But I I've seen some of the renderings. Uh, it will be interesting. So I, I guess final question then is, you know, are you relying on a Fed here to... You know, it's sort of on the one hand, we're describing a scenario where you think they've artificially intervened in markets, including the bond market, arguably then propping up equities. And on the other hand, we're saying, you know, well, but buy stocks. I mean, like, is there so much of a disconnect there that it makes you uncomfortable uh, with what's going on in the market more broadly? I'd be uncomfortable if I owned growth stocks because I believe that growth stocks are being propped up by low interest rates. But my companies that I talked to you about, the value names that we love, Goldman Sachs at 11 times earnings, Bank of Oklahoma at 11 times earnings. 
the some of the energy names are going to make a lot of money with a $68 uh, WTI. I don't need the Fed's help. I just, when interest rates go to normal levels, my names that are earning cash today are going to do very well because the economy is so good and these companies are doing so well. And what happens if interest rate, if the 10-year goes below 1%, what are you going to do? I expect some sort of dramatic I'm going to have public. a bad month. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to have a bad week or two because the growth stocks are going to go through the roof and my value stocks are going to get punished. But in the long run, we cannot have an uneconomic 10-year. Anybody buying a 10-year today at 1.2% is going to lose money, going to lose money on a real basis. And they're doing it for non-economic reasons. That's going to end. All right. Charlie, never shy to take a stand. Thank you so much for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Charlie Babrinskoy of Ariel Investments. As I mentioned, let's have this debate. What's driving investors into the bond market? Wall Street has a bunch of different reasons it could come up with right now. There's COVID fears, the Fed the, uh, we just mentioned, de deflation worries, even as we're talking about some of the inflationary pressures we're dealing with across the economy. Maybe even China. Why are bond yields stuck at such low levels? Here to explain are our own Steve Leisman and Rick Santelli. Um, Steve, let me just kick it off with you. You know, what's the, the kind of pre prevailing one right now? Is it COVID? Yeah, that's the number one thing that I hear when I talk to guys who are throwing this money around and doing the uh, the, the dumb thing of buying uh, uh, bonds at uh, 120, which your last guest was talking about. Uh, there's a fear of growth out there, not somewhat in the United States, but also globally. Uh, this idea of this Delta variant being as contagious as it is, we have a large percentage of Americans who are uh, who are vaccinated. That's not true in other parts of the world where the Delta variant could be problematic. Um, there is a debate about just how uh, fatal th that disease is relative to the alpha variant, for example. But that's what the bond guys are talking about in the first cause. But there's other reasons, and you tick them off. Um, the idea that uh, Powell sounds a little tougher on inflation last week, that's one aspect of it. Plus, um, and this is where uh, my colleague from Chicago, uh, Rick Santelli, excels, is the technical aspects of this are a big part of what's moving the money around right now. What are those technicals, Rick? Do you think there's a big influence of Chinese buying? I mean, what do you see as you look into the guts here? Well, I think, first of all, we have to really address something much more basic. We've had several experts on, and they really know what they're talking about. But here's some of the comments they've had. Uh, yields aren't, don't make sense here. They shouldn't be here. Well, my answer to that is yields are exactly where they should be. They're just not there based on risk reward. They're there based on central banking activities for the most part. Another issue is, is that the treasuries have been wrong 10 years. Let me think. What happened about 12 years ago? That's when central banks decided they didn't need their spinach. They could grow their own muscles with QE. All of these things have permanently changed the landscape. So in order to decide where treasuries could go, we first have to acknowledge that they are just exactly where they need to be. And those reasons are what we need to study the most. I look to Europe. They still haven't settled up the game from the last credit crisis with regard to their banks. So would I be shocked to see us trade 75 basis points or potentially test the all-time low close of half of 1%? And, oh, I wouldn't. Do I think it's going to happen? I don't think so. But I would be anything but shocked if we got there. I think the biggest problem right now is all about timing. Yes, it's reopening, but it's reopening questions based on knowledge that's highly questionable. Think about all the things we thought were true in March and April of 2020. Now fast forward to today. I can't tell you about Delta variants or any of the Greek names that are 
assuredly going to crop up between now and September and October, the fall. You know what happens in the fall. But ultimately, I think that the Treasury complex at some price in yield around 1% is going to find a boatload of reality that will push rates higher. Steve, do you want to respond to that? Well, the only problem I have is understanding this idea that somehow it's the Fed. And, and the reason I say that is not because, you know, I, I, I know the Fed is buying uh, $80 billion a month in securities, but that's been constant. And the bond market has oscillated around a lot uh, while the Fed has done a pretty consistent thing of buying these treasuries. It moves around a little bit on the curve, uh, of course, and, and changes the duration of its net uh, aggregate purchases. But ultimately, that's been a constant. I believe the market in some ways is expressing some combination of some fundamental aspects to it and some technical aspects to it, which are, are, are really deep in the weeds of, the, of, of how it works. But one thing I think is interesting, we've talked a lot about peak growth and somehow the market is realizing that the second quarter is the, is, is the hottest when it comes to growth. The same forecast that tell you it's peak growth tell you that we've had peak inflation that this huge number we have right now is going to come down. Now, maybe that's going to be wrong, but certainly the GDP number could be wrong as well. But the conventional wisdom right now for the forecasters on the street is that the worst part of inflation is behind us, as is the biggest part of growth. And all of that does argue for a lower bond yield than you would have had otherwise had. All right, Rick, you get 20 seconds. <laughs> Just remember that even a, even a drugged up patient in a hospital has moments of lucidity. <laughs> Just he, want to point that he out. He only needed about five. Rick Santelli and Steve Placement. Was he talking about me or was he talking about the bond market? I think maybe the Not Fed. you. I'm talking about the bonds, of there, course, There Steven. we go. Oh, Rick, okay, I want to just be clear about that, my friend. Steve and Rick, thank you both uh, for no at least problem. this chapter in the ongoing uh, debate and discussion about bond yields today here on The Exchange. Here's what's coming up after a quick break. Crypto identity crisis. $90 billion wiped out of the market as Bitcoin drops back below 30K. But despite the growing uncertainty, a new Fidelity survey shows many firms becoming more bullish. Those results when we return. Plus some big names reporting after the bell today, including Netflix and United. The ultimate stay-at-home stock versus the symbol of the reopening. But as the Delta strain spreads, the market might not be big enough for both. Stay with us. This is The Exchange on CNBC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Go to cnbcmakeit.com slash courses to register now and learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course where experts share their secrets for a dynamic resume, coming across with confidence, what to wear, and more. For a limited time, save 50% with our introductory offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses.
Welcome back. Bitcoin is down again today. It's now valued below $30,000 for the first time since June, with most of the crypto space selling off along with it. But a new survey shows that institutions are more bullish on crypto, with 70% still expecting to buy. Kate Rooney is here with the details. Kate? Hey, Kelly. Fidelity is out with its annual institutional investor survey today, showing increased exposure and bullishness on cryptocurrencies from that group. The firm surveyed more than 1,100 institutional investors, so think money managers, hedge funds, mutual funds. More than half of those guys say they now have some exposure to crypto. That average was higher in Asia at 71%. It was 56% in Europe. Meanwhile, the U.S. has the lowest exposure at 33%, but ownership is climbing across the board. It was up six percentage points in the U.S., 71% of institutional investors now say they plan to invest in digital assets in the future. And of that group, 90% say that they plan to make a move in the next five years and have at least some allocation to crypto. The number one barrier to entry still is price volatility. That was followed by lack of fundamentals to gauge value and concerns around market manipulation. Joining us now to talk about these results Tom Jessup, he is the president of Fidelity Digital Assets. Tom, it's great to see you. Thanks so much for being here. My pleasure, Kate. Nice to see you. Let's start with Bitcoin this week. It's still below $30,000. What are you hearing from those institutional investors at these price levels? Are they still as interested as they were at $60,000 back in April? Yeah, look, I'd say, you know, consistent with broader market activity, there's been uh, a decline in trading activity, but we've seen pretty consistent interest in terms of clients opening accounts and getting ready for uh, an entry price that makes sense for them. Um, I think what we've seen and others have seen in the institutional space is that um, they've tended to be called the, the steady pair of hands throughout this, um, this downdraft. And so, look, I think 30,000 was a psychological barrier for many, but we've drifted below that. Um, today, it doesn't seem to be an acceleration of selling pressure. I think the question is, you know, when do people start coming in again? And as one of my uh, our customers said to me last week, he said, you know, the problem with bear markets is that they tend to end with a whimper, not a bang. So uh, it may be the case that prices get to a certain level. People feel constructive about the next leg, leg up and that, you know, we resume where we were you know, back in, um, you know, towards the beginning of the year. Got it. Let's home in on some of those barriers to entry. We talked about price volatility is number one. You say there was less concern about market infrastructure than years in the past. What changed there and what still needs to happen to make some of these investors a little bit more comfortable? Yeah, I think the first thing is just liquidity. I mean, there's a, a tremendous increase in the amount of available liquidity in the market uh, over the past few years. You've got the entry of uh, you know, well-qualified service providers like Fidelity who focus on the needs of institutions I think there's a general view that really with the client's own education, um, that they are growing increasingly comfortable with the ability to uh, deploy strategies uh, with the same level of safety, soundness, and access to liquidity that they would in other asset classes. And obviously, we and others in the industry have a long way to go. But um, there's that initial indicia of, um, of a foundation there for institutional activity which is very exciting as they start foraying into other um, corners of the asset class. And Tom, we've talked a lot about Bitcoin as a hedge against inflation. This really seems like it could be the perfect environment for Bitcoin playing that role in the market based on some of the data we've gotten recently. It's really not. It seems to still be trading as sort of a high tech growth play. 
You know, is the macro environment still a big reason that the investors you talk to are buying in? And if not, you know, when will Bitcoin actually prove itself, if not in this environment? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. So I would say, you know, there are two primary reasons why our clients are interested in the asset class. Certainly with Bitcoin, given uh, its scarcity uh, and sort of aspirational store value properties, there is that linkage with the macro environment and the potential hedge against uh, monetary or price inflation. Um, having said that, to your point, uh, everything tends to correlate to one in times of market stress. So we have seen Bitcoin behave more like a risk, risk asset, uh, even overnight. Um, and it may, it may be uh, several more months or even market cycles to know whether this thesis around uh, Bitcoin being an inflation hedge is one that, that's durable. I think the other important thing to think about is, you know, you're not just getting that in isolation. What you're also getting is effectively an investment in something that looks like uh, you know, a front row seat to the next wave of tech innovation, right? So back in the late 80s, early 90s, we had PCs, which gave way to the internet, mobile technology. And I think there's an implicit acknowledgement in some of our survey results that investors are increasingly not only looking at this from a macro standpoint, but, but really starting to develop a thesis around how is this going to change financial services of the world? You know, and that's not only borne out by our survey, but all the capital you've seen coming into the venture space as well as the talent that's coming from traditional tech and finance into, into the blockchain world. And that's very exciting, and that this sort of the duality of, of some of these assets, including Bitcoin. And Tom, it's Kelly here. If I can just ask a, a quick question on the regulatory front right now. We have, uh, I believe, Janet Yellen and the Stablecoin Working Group yesterday uh, sort of huddling to kind of look at some of the options going forward. A lot of people in the crypto space are concerned about the role that Tether has played or what happens if kind of the rug is pulled out uh, from underneath Bitcoin, so to speak. Um, what's, when you talk to clients about investing in Bitcoin, do you tell them to kind of wait until there's clarity on this front? Do you think the stablecoin issue is ultimately just a passing one that we're going to have the introduction? You know, USDC is going to gain more share. They're going to introduce, you know, a, a U.S. dollar version or whatever it is. I mean, how do we kind of get through this transition? Yeah. So, so one interesting takeaway from the survey is that you know regulatory concerns seem to have dropped a little bit in terms of uh, where investors are today versus let's say last year. Um, and so you can attribute that to a couple of things. You could attribute it to you know modest progress in terms of getting to a point of regulatory clarity, which, despite what you think of the news flow and what it may mean in the future, the fact that policymakers are focused on the asset class it, it in some way is a positive, and it's incumbent upon us and others to engage constructively. Um, I think the other thing is, you know, it's just the nature of the asset class. You know, every, every every asset class has its own idiosyncratic risks. And I think there's a growing realization that, you know, if you want to play in this space, it's an evolving space with potentially high returns. You're going to have to come to your own conclusion about what is the regulatory risk? What is the tech risk? And so I think it's probably two of those things that are, um, you know, on, on clients, uh, clients' minds at this point. Um, I think, said more succinctly, uh, it just goes with the territory and it's part of your, your investment decision. And even more succinctly, perhaps buyer beware. <laughs> Sounds like you're saying, you know, you, you do the research and figure out what you're uh, comfortable with. Tom, it's a pleasure to have you on today. Thank you so much. And Kate Rooney, appreciate you bringing that survey to us. Uh, Kate Rooney reporting for us there as well. Coming up, could surging Delta cases put companies return to office plans on hold? What would it mean for the already struggling commercial real estate space? If so, the CEO of Empire State Realty Trust will join us to discuss that. Plus, the Nasdaq working to allow investors to trade pre-IPO stocks. We'll have more on that in rapid fire. And here's a look at the stocks leading the Nasdaq right now. Peloton, DocuSign, and Microchip. A little bit of a pandemic feel to it still. We're back in a moment. 
How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course. Get the limited-time offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses. Welcome back to The Exchange, everybody. We're about 100 points off session highs. The Dow's up 560. That's a 1.6% rebound after yesterday's declines. Very similar across all the major averages, the flip side of what we saw yesterday, which also had similar declines, although the Dow did underperform yesterday as Boeing was down big, Goldman and some others. Again, today we have about 1.5% gains across the board, including with the NASDAQ and the S&P 500 right now. Let's talk about some of the big movers this hour. HCA Holdings is soaring nearly 15%. The Nashville-based healthcare operator raising full-year earnings and revenue guidance. The CEO saying healthcare demand has improved even as the pandemic has eased. So about 14.5% again for HCA. And Stiefel upgrading Simon Property to a buy from hold, arguing that despite renewed risks with COVID variants, stock is still worth buying on the dip. SPG is up about 6% on that. For more on the call and other top calls of the day, go over to CNBC.com slash pro. Now we go over to Rahel Solomon for a CNBC News update. Rahel. Hi, Kelly. Hello, everyone. Here's what's happening at this hour. Federal banking regulators are reportedly working to update rules that govern hundreds of billions of dollars of loans in lower-income communities. The Wall Street Journal says that changes to the Community Reinvestment Act could be announced as soon as today. Republican Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene says that her 12-hour suspension from Twitter is a, quote, communist-style attack on free speech. Greene's account was suspended after posting false claims that vaccines are killing people. The phone of French President Emmanuel Macron was targeted in the Project Pegasus spyware case. That's according to the French newspaper Le Monde. He is among the first heads of state named in the case. And as many as 200 Americans reporting symptoms associated with the so-called Havana syndrome linked to possible attacks on U.S. embassies around the world. Recent cases include Berlin and Vienna. About half the people are linked to the CIA. And tonight on the news, what type of attacks are they and who might be behind them? Of course, airs tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern with Shepard Smith. You're now up to date, Kelly. I'll send it back to you. All right, Rahel, thank you. Netflix earnings are out after the bell. Apple's going to Hollywood and Peloton's corporate push. All of those stories and more are right ahead in rapid fire. And take a look at shares of some retail stocks enjoying big gains today. Capri Holdings, L Brands, Bed Bath & Beyond, PVH. We're all seeing gains in the range of 4% or more. We're back in a moment. Welcome back, everybody. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. It's time for Rapid uh, Fire. Fire. Uh, Joining me to help break down the headlines, Julia Borston, Bob Bassani, and Nancy Tangler are all here today. Nancy is the chief investment officer at Laffer Tangler Investments. And we want to start with Netflix because its earnings are out after the bell and investors are always watching those subscriber editions. It's also kind of a bellwether for where we are in the shutdown reopening uh, trade here. The company added nearly 26 million new subscribers during quarantine last year, but less than 4 million new users in the first quarter of this year. They're expecting to add only about a million in the second quarter. Julia, stock is about flat this year, too. Uh, What do you think the whisper is that they are expectations pretty low, you think? Well, look, I think analysts are really hoping that they will surpass that one million number. That one million number is so low and it really speaks to the pull forward, but also concerns about a saturated market. The real question, though, Kelly, is what they say about the second half of the year. Netflix already hinted that they expect growth to pick up again in the second half of the year. But now analysts are going to be looking for specific guidance for third quarter subscriber growth. And the number that analysts are looking for is about five and a half million subscriber net additions in the third quarter. So that is 
the number I would watch in terms of guidance. And I think also, Kelly, any commentary we might get from the company, especially about a move into gaming, other potential for more expansion internationally. And there are questions now, Kelly, whether this U.S. market is really pretty saturated. Bob, what would you add? Well, look, uh, I love analysts. I've been following them for 25 years. Somebody once said that a second marriage was the triumph of hope over experience. That's what analysts do. It's hope over experience. I think 76% still have a buy on this. Are you kidding me? Look, uh, you don't like the first half? Oh, don't worry. The second half will have better content growth. It's always a little bit sunnier on the other half. This is the story about Netflix. This is a company that was trading for 100 times forward earnings four or five years ago. It is still remarkably trading for 40 times forward earnings. That's way high. Yes, the company still has significant earnings growth, but it's nothing like it used to be. It's becoming more mature. That P.E. multiple is slowly coming down, and it, it should be. Let's debate how many subscribers, but there is a, uh, there's clearly a limit to how far they can go at this point, and certainly in the United Although, States. Although, Nancy, I understand. And uh, sort of in this case, the bullishness of the analyst community, because famously, when you know, I was heard on the street about a decade ago, if you tried to go short Netflix, God help you. I mean, like Bob said, it was 100 times earnings. It was even higher. And the stock just kept going and going and going. So the remarkable thing lately is to see it finally kind of catch its breath after their huge subscriber ads last year. Do you think they're ever going to go back to the kind of stratosphere-esque valuations they once commanded? I don't I don't think so, Kelly. I mean, I, I do think that they're the the emergence into gaming is a hint to, to investors that they understand that the streaming business is slowing down and they've guided us accordingly. That said, uh, as a growth of a reasonable price investor, this stock is almost in our buy range, having wow. done almost nothing on a trailing one-year basis. So I think you you watch earnings. This company is, has exceeded earnings 75% of the time. Uh, they have pricing power, at least they have historically. And if they maintain both of those, I, I think you might get a chance to step in despite what happens uh, uh, from an earnings standpoint. But I agree with Bob. I mean, we wouldn't have so many earnings surprises if analysts were good at estimating earnings. <laughs> Although for Netflix to be a garb stock certainly tells us at a, at a maturation phase. Bob, I just want to give you a quick coda, a quick last word on this. Well, I agree with what, what Nancy said. Look, the important thing is the company has been a fabulous performer for a decade, but it's been out for almost 20 years. Just recognize that. And people, I know we keep trying to get the subscriber ads right, but it's getting smaller and smaller. The ability to add more people is smaller and smaller as the company gets more mature. Just understand that. Still good earnings growth. Look at that numbers that they've had in the, the monthly, the yearly editions earnings growth. But it ain't anywhere near it was four, five, six, or seven years ago. And the competition is getting steeper. So on that front, uh, moving along to our next story here, Apple is reportedly looking to lease studio space in Hollywood to expand its ability to film original shows and movies. Sources telling the Wall Street Journal Apple has interest in several locations around L.A. and needs no less than half a million square feet of space. It launched a couple years ago, Apple TV Plus, and it's produced a few hits like Ted Lasso in The Morning Show, but it's still woefully behind the competition. Julia, is this the right strategy? Well, look, I think it makes sense for Apple to invest in more original content. It said that it didn't care about having a big library. That said, I have heard from sources that they have had meetings with Hello Sunshine, that's Reese Witherspoon's company, about potentially buying that company. No word, official word from the company there, and it's unclear to whom that uh, Hello Sunshine might sell to. But I think that clearly Apple understands it needs more original content. And having more studio space is a great way to do it with talent that wants to stay here in Los Angeles. There is a limited amount of studio space in Hollywood. That's why we saw Netflix 
open a big studio facility in Albuquerque. So I think it makes sense as Apple thinks about growing what it can offer as it tries to use that service as a way to really bring people into its ecosystem. Nancy, do investors want Apple to double down on its investments here for, you know, the obvious reasons of the kind of stock multiple they could engender with a a higher subscriber count, or does it make them worried that they're losing focus on the profitability of the main model? Well, I I think um, that Apple needs to do something new, and this is an opportunity for them to do that. However, I would also say um, that original content, as we saw with Netflix, is very expensive, and Disney, you know, came out and had a whole library of historical content that and they've been able to grow that fast at marginal expense. So I think I think it makes sense for Apple to dip their toe in. I don't really have a sense of how successful they're going to be. We've been net sellers in stock, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it does strike me that you've got, you know, Apple hiring a Netflix exec, Netflix hiring a Facebook exec, the the uh, <laughs> monopoly game is get, getting kind of interesting. So yeah, we'll now, see what happens. Facebook needs to hire a TikTok exec or something like that to just keep this whole thing going. <laughs> Uh, maybe you should just skip ahead. All right, we'll move along uh, and leave the streaming wars alone for now. Uh, the NASDAQ is partnering with big banks now to spin out its platform for trading stock in private companies. The NASDAQ private market will become a standalone company, receiving investments from the likes of Citi, Goldman, and Morgan Stanley. The platform was established all the way back in 2014 and allows uh, brokers, companies, even private investors to manage and execute stock transactions pre-IPO. So, Bob, you know, this, this wasn't it. A, a yesterday innovation, so to speak. But why are they no. taking this step now? Well, uh, because the potential is there. So think about uh, an employee of a company, uh, and they thought there was going to be an IPO after five years, and there are now 10 years. They want to buy a house. Mm-hmm. There's pressure on them. There's no obvious market. Uh, a venture capital firm that has a five-year investment horizon, and they're in a 10 years on that. This is a very, very common problem. So there is a market need. Here's the real issue. The companies want to control this. They want to make it very clear. You're not going to set up some private market. We're, we're trading privately in our house for 100 and you want to sell for $80. They'll, most of the cases I have seen here, you need the company's permission if you're a venture capital or employee and they want to control that price. To the extent NASDAQ has an agreement with them to do that, I think that's certainly a good idea. And I think it'll be a little bit of a pressure, a, a pressure valve release for these companies companies who are facing pressure from venture capital and their own employees. Uh, It'd be nice to see more companies IPO. Isn't that what the is all about? There's the ultimate pressure valve release. Exactly. Julie, that's kind of the interesting question. If you allow some kind of liquidity before needing the IPO, then do you not need to IPO? And then we're kind of playing this game where you can do it privately, but the public can access. Anyway, there are other platforms like EquityZen, I believe, which allow um, insiders to monetize their shares. How does this uh, puzzle piece fit in? Well, look, I think what this was really about from my perspective is this is about the war for talent. It's so hard to get great talent, even at these Silicon Valley companies. And these employees want to be able to have the option of getting liquidity before companies go public, especially because companies are taking much longer to go public. So this enables companies to give something to their employees give them that ability to have liquidity, to buy the house or do whatever it is that they want to do with their shares. But I think, uh, you know, to your point and to Bob's point, I think this doesn't necessarily remove all the pressure. 
um, for the different reasons to go public. This is not going to, you know, yield the returns to uh, to the venture capital players in the way that they would want to, because there's certainly going to be restrictions on how much you could sell. You right. know, the, the LPs are going to want to get their their investment back. But I do think that this does um, allow those employees to have a little bit more flexibility. And maybe helps the NASDAQ kind of keep up with all of these innovations uh, that allow people to get that liquidity a little bit earlier on. All right. Finally, today, United Healthcare is teaming up with Peloton to offer millions of its members access to the Peloton app for free for a year starting in September they can access thousands of live and on-demand classes on the app or opt for a four-month waiver towards an all-access Peloton membership instead. They say the goal is to make fitness and overall wellness more accessible. Shares of United Health up 1%, Nancy, and Peloton up 4.5% on this news. My question, I haven't seen, I don't know if, if it's uh, mentioned in here, is whether Peloton is being is paying for this privilege because it seems like an enormous privilege for United Health to be giving out to its members. Yeah, I, I think it's great news for Peloton, Kelly, because, you know, the the stock is down 19% year to date. You can only sell so much equipment as Apple figured out uh, decades ago. And so you need to add in services. Um, I, I like the story a lot. I used to work for Steve Bechtel and uh, his executives were always asking for gym memberships. And he said, when I run into you in the stairwell, this was when he was in his 80s, um, I'll, I'll get you a gym membership. And he used to climb those stairs day, day in, day out. So I, I like it. I think fitness is super important in light of the pandemic and just in general as the population ages. So I, I think this is really good news for Peloton. They needed this. You know, we lived on, the I think, a 14th floor once and thought, yeah, this will be a good chance to get a stair workout. And I think we did about twice. <laughs> We're like, all right, forget it. It's exhausting. <laughs> Thank you all today. We appreciate it. Nancy Tangler, Bob Bassani, and Julia Borston for Rapid Fire. Coming up, stocks are rebounding from yesterday's COVID-related sell-off. The Dow's up as much as 660 points at the highs. From the CDC's newest guidance on Delta to the big vaccine news out of Europe, we will wrap up all the latest headlines on the COVID front right after this. Welcome back. The Delta variant now accounts for 83 percent of COVID cases in the U.S., according to the CDC director. She and Dr. Anthony Fauci testifying at a Senate hearing today. Our Meg Terrell joins me now with those headlines and more on the latest numbers. Meg? Hey, Kelly. Well, as the Delta variant spread, we have seen case numbers go up. Uh, by quite a lot here in the U.S. They are almost triple what they were two weeks ago, now approaching 35,000 per day. We're also seeing hospitalizations rise in that time, 55 percent, now approaching 20,000, and deaths around 250, up 18 percent over the last two weeks. Now, Dr. Walensky at that Senate hearing saying the prevalence of Delta among sequence cases now 83 percent. That's up from 50 percent in the week of July 3rd. So it is rising here quickly, speaking to just how transmissible this variant is. Now, we're hearing some other news uh, from that Senate hearing as well. Dr. Janet Woodcock, the acting commissioner of the FDA, was asked about uh, the report we saw from Stat News this morning that there are some vaccine doses, 26 million potentially, uh, that are at risk of expiring, of course, enough to protect uh, more than 13 million people. And she said that the FDA is looking at potentially extending those expiration dates based on incoming stability data from the companies. They've done this once before with the J&J vaccine, so trying to make sure that none of these vaccine doses go to waste. Kelly, we're also getting some news separate from that hearing from Europe, uh, the regulator there 
Air saying that it started a rolling review of Sanofi's COVID-19 vaccine. This is one we don't hear about quite so much. This rolling review will be based on preclinical data, so data before even human clinical trials and early clinical trial data. Uh, and in that uh, press release, we learned the brand name for the Sanofi COVID vaccine. It's Vidprevten. And this is just one of four brand names now we know about, um, at least in Europe. Here in the U.S., they're not using them yet, but the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines called Comirnaty, Moderna's Spikevax, and AstraZeneca's is called Vaxevria. So, Kelly, who knows if we'll ever use these names, but there they are. It's a reminder. I didn't even know the name of the vaccine that I got, uh, officially speaking. Meg, thanks. We appreciate you uh, bringing us up to speed on all the latest today, Meg Terrell. That Delta variant reportedly causing Apple to push its return to the office plan for uh, to October from September. Despite the reopening optimism, uh, it's been driving the real estate sector higher. And thanks to yesterday's drop, it's now the best performer this year, beating energy. But could the climbing case count threaten that run? Joining us now is Anthony Malkin. He's the chairman and CEO of Empire State Realty Trust. It's good to check in with you again. It's been about a year. Um, how, are, how are things looking for you? You know, uh, first, thanks for having me aboard. Uh, things are much better. Uh, this past week, we had our highest numbers of in-office population relative to 2019, both in New York City and the greater New York metropolitan area. Our focus uh, from the very beginning on healthy buildings, indoor environmental quality, mean that tenants, uh, tenants can return with confidence to the office spaces. MERV 13 uh, filters, ventilation, bipolar ionization all create a healthy environment for employers and employees to return with confidence. Yeah, we've talked about a lot of the kind of headwinds. There's obviously concerns about New York City in general and crime and cleanliness and all of that kind of thing. And it seems just as people were all getting ready for this big Labor Day, you know, post-Labor Day return to the office. Anecdotally, you know, I live in a New York City suburb and it seems like that was the plan for everybody. But now it's, it's a little bit more questionable. Um, you know, and just another neighbor of mine is moving to the Berkshires because they, they can now work from anywhere. They say they don't really have to be here. So uh, what's the long-term plan? Do you think that your sort of the, the inside of the building is going to look and act and be what it was five years ago when we kind of roll the clock forward five more years? Yeah, I think the number one thing uh, in office space is that you have to have an environment to which employees want to return. So on the one hand, we as a landlord work, uh, we are the first people to get uh, a commercial portfolio at the well health safety rating. Uh, we have a long way to go as far as people when they return to the office to understand what it is like if you are not in the office. Uh, where will people want to be when there are meetings? Initially, people think that they can click in from the Berkshires. Well, what happens in that hallway validation, the, the, the expressions and discussions that happen after the meeting is closed as people who are in the office are together? I think that it's really way too early to tell how people will feel, in spite of everyone's best efforts, to include people who are not in the office in the important things that happen in the office. Yeah, no, that's the, absolutely the major debate that's playing out right now. So let me ask you about your probably most unique asset, of course, the Empire State Sky Deck or the Observation Deck, as you call it. But kind of a blessing and a curse. In one way, it makes your building one of the destinations in the city. But of course, right now with large gatherings in question and all of that, um, I'm just curious what visitation numbers are like, um, you know, and if kind of price hikes or anything like that can help with the mix and when you expect that to really be back up to full speed. So you know, we, we have set forth uh, a hypothetical to investors as to a full return by the end of 2022 to uh, pre-COVID levels of 
uh, of attendance. What's happened along the way, candidly, is number one, we're very pleased. We'll report our second quarter uh, next week, which will give an insight as to uh, what we actually have accomplished in this year to date against those hypotheticals. We're, we're very comfortable with where we are, number one. Number two, we've had indoor environmental quality standards at the observatory since we completed the $165 million reduce of the same MERV 13 filters, active bipolar ionization, ventilation. And then the final piece is we moved to an all-reserved model at the Empire State Building in order to reduce concentration of crowds. We needed to maintain crowd mm -hmm. control. As a result, yeah. uh, we're seeing far higher per caps uh, as people purchase online with yep. us and choose to upgrade for the experience. That makes sense. I've had that experience uh, even at the local zoo recently. Anthony Malkin, thanks for your time. We appreciate it today. Checking Thank in you. on Empire State. Still ahead, if the return to the office is back on track, is the return of business travel as well. Investors will be closely watching commentary on that in United, United's earnings after the bell. We'll preview those results next. And you can catch us anytime, anywhere by listening to and following the Exchange podcast. We're back here in a moment. Welcome back. United reports after the bell today. The shares are higher today, but down more than 11 percent in the past three months. And with ongoing concerns about the Delta variant, the street will be paying close attention to one travel segment in particular. Phil LeBeau is here now with that story. Hi, Phil. Hi, Kelly. You know, the expectation is that we will see a loss from United. Really, we're going to see it from all of the airlines in the second quarter. But it's the commentary about what they expect in the third quarter and the fourth quarter, in particular with bookings and what kind of impact they might have seen uh, or are seeing when it comes to the Delta variant. So when you take a look at United's Q2 report, which comes after the bell, a couple of things to focus on. First of all, will they say anything about reporting a profit in the month of June? What is the impact of the Delta variant? Has it slowed down leisure booking? What's happening with corporate travel bookings? Passenger levels overall for the industry, they have increased over the last three months, but it's about down 20 to 21 percent. I wouldn't say it's plateaued, but it's not really growing much uh, over the last three to four weeks. For United, the Q2 loss estimate is for $3.96 a share. Don't get too caught up on that number. Uh, if they beat it, it won't be a surprise. And I think the street is looking at uh, whatever the results are in Q2, unless it's wildly out of line. Uh, and they're not going to pay a lot of attention there. What they will pay attention to, commentary on the conference call tomorrow and to our interview coming up tomorrow morning, an exclusive on Squat Box with the CEO of United Airlines, Scott Kirby. You do not want to miss what he has to say, not just about Q2, but more importantly, what they're seeing in terms of bookings for Q3 and the rest of this year. Kelly? Phil, debt levels, I mean, have they, or what do you think we're down from the peaks and roughly speaking percentage-wise? You mean how much more debt have they taken on? Well, I'm or actually, uh, I, how much have they paid off? The, the, how much have they paid off? I'm asking you, you have about three seconds to respond. <laughs> yeah, a, a, small per, a small percentage, okay. but frankly, right now, that, the debt levels are not a huge driver of momentum on the stocks. No, it's true. It's true. I think investors are trying to already look past that. Phil, we look forward to the yeah. results later. Thank you so much, our Phil LeBeau. You bet. And that does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. How do you land your dream job? It starts by acing the interview. Learn exactly what hiring managers are looking for with CNBC Make It's new career-boosting online course. Get the limited-time offer. Register now at cnbcmakeit.com slash courses.